Let's get started this morning. We're in the book of Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read this morning, uh, beginning at verse 12, and we're going to go through verse 20. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And we will stop there. Let's pray over what we've just read, and uh, let's get into what it may be telling us this morning. Father, we come to you as a church, trusting that this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, that it is the narrative story that we're following. We know where it goes. We know we're headed to the crucifixion. and We've heard this story before. We've read it before. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we trust in your Word, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see what we need to see. Lord, I pray you would bring faith through the hearing of your word, and that we would be strengthened, we would be encouraged, and God, that we would be led to repentance by your goodness. I pray that you would do all the millions of nuanced things that you do in the hearts of your people through the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach it faithfully the way that I should. And it is in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Now, right off the bat... Uh, I want to address something that is one of these places in Scripture that brings up a little curiosity question mark, and some of you probably already know what it is. Um, What kind of problem did Jesus have with this poor, innocent fig tree? There are actually people who mention one of the reasons uh, Bertrand Russell was one of them, a famous atheist who couldn't, uh, one of the reasons he lists for not being able to to be a Christian um, is that Jesus destroyed, or at least the story about Jesus, he is depicting him destroying this innocent plant. I mean, it's not even the season for figs. Now, when you read that, does anybody get that vibe when you read it? Like, why did he do that? Okay, so I'm not the only one. It's interesting, though, and again, the Bible is so uh, direct in the way that it it 
portrays the story, it's interesting that the Bible is the one that presents us with the dilemma. It, the, Mark is the one writing this out, probably narrated to him through Peter, who was here. And Peter, by the way, when we, when we get over to verse 21, is going to be the one that says, Lord, it's, it's dead. But Peter's narrating to Mark, led by the Holy Spirit. He's writing, and it's as if he is saying there uh, in verse 13, you know what was really crazy about this story is it wasn't even the time for figs. That's in essence what Mark has inserted into the, into the story, into the text. So we want to look at that, and I'm going to address that. But the first thing that I want to do before I get into that, I just wanted to acknowledge that it's there. The, the first thing that I want to do is give some kind of background for the significance of why we're even talking about a fig tree. And that is going to help us, I think, understand what the significance of this passage is, because this is really significant, and I think you'll see that as we go on. So the first thing that I want to, want to suggest to, 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 the, to you about what we are reading is that this is a prophetic illustration that Jesus is using. Now that sounds really interesting. What is a prophetic illustration. In the Old Testament, God frequently had his prophets do things as an illustration to the people of what he meant. I'm going to read you one. You don't have to turn there. But in Jeremiah chapter 13, listen to what God told Jeremiah to do as a prophetic illustration. Thus says the Lord to me. It's interesting the way he writes that. Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise, Go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug. Sounds like it was in the mud if it's near the river. And I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory but they would not listen. A little scary, actually, this story out of Jeremiah, which is leading to the Babylonian captivity. But the point that I'm bringing out is, God had Jeremiah literally get a loincloth and take it to the Euphrates and bury it in the mud in a cleft of the rock. And then after many days, this is, this is how 
detailed and how, if you want to use the word dramatic, God is in his dealing with Israel, he sends Jeremiah back, get the loincloth out, and it's ruined. And then prophesy to Israel and tell them, this is what you are like to me, Israel. That's kind of scary that God would do that, but he uses actual illustrations. And throughout the prophets, there are some really creative stories, and we could get lost looking at all the times God did this. There's some really, really unique stories. But the point that I'm bringing out is Jesus is operating and functioning as the Messiah and as a prophet, the greatest prophet that ever lived. And I believe that this illustration of the loincloth helps us understand what's going on with the fig tree. But let me, let me read you something else. Figs in the Old Testament were used to give a status update or a status report on the spiritual condition of Israel. Let me, let me read you this out of Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. God is making a comparison using grapes and figs to say, Israel, you've got no fruit. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, there's, an, there's another status update, but this one is positive. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So, in Hosea, it's a positive way to say, Israel, you're bearing fruit. In Jeremiah, it's a negative way to say, you're not bearing fruit. And he's using the fig tree in relation to Israel. There's actually a lot of places in the Old Testament where God compares Israel to fig trees and the grapevine. There's also places where he uses Israel's condition spiritually in relation to judgment. Here's Hosea chapter 2, verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So, just to recap, God frequently uses His prophets to have physical illustrations to describe something He's going to do in judgment or something He's going to do in blessing. Also, fig trees show up in the Old Testament as a status report. This is, this is the temperature of Israel's obedience. Or it shows up as something positive going on or negative in that status. It also shows up as judgment on Israel. So all of that said, we go back to the fig tree and we have to ask, what is Jesus trying to do? Because as soon as we leave the fig tree, we wind up in the temple. And he judges everybody in the temple. Right? 
He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. And then he cleanses the temple by driving them out. And then we come back out of the city, and there's the fig tree again. So, if, if all that is connected, which it obviously is, then what, what Mark is trying to tell us, what God is trying to tell us, is that Jesus is making a prophetic pronouncement against Israel. In, in the other synoptic Gospels, Jesus says, and weeps over Jerusalem, and says, you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know. You were looking for the Messiah, and I am here. And you refuse to see. So let's look at that a little more closely. So let's go back to the fig tree in verses 12 through 13. Now, let me... Let me answer the question I brought up right off the bat. Why in the world did Jesus kill this tree? Especially if Mark tells us there's not even supposed to be figs on it. It doesn't seem very fair. Right? It seems like Jesus should understand that there's no figs in spring. Because that's the time of year we are. Because they're going into the Passover, which happens in the spring. The figs show up like... Fruit here shows up in the fall. So, two, two things I will say as possibility, and I'll tell you which one I lean towards. No, number one, there are actually multiple types of fig trees in Palestine. And the leading archaeologist and the folks that study the culture of the first century in that area will tell you that the vast majority of fig trees give fruit in the fall. However, there are some fig trees, and you can tell by their leaves when they're out in bloom in a certain way that actually put out figs in the spring. Not all of them, some of them. And Jesus, living there his whole life, and by the way, the creator of the fig trees, knows how they're supposed to work. And he sees a tree, and if you look at it, what it says, verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. It's got leaves. So the people who, who have this uh, view say, Jesus is looking at the type of fig tree that has fruit in the spring. And it should have fruit, but it don't. So when he gets up to it and he's hungry, and he's on his way into the temple... He's on his way to pronounce a judgment. He sees a tree that's in leaf that should have figs, even though Mark tells us this isn't the season for figs, but this particular tree should have figs, and he curses it. Nobody's going to eat from you again. But the larger story, uh, the reason for him doing that is not the sake of the fig tree, obviously. Jesus is operating in a prophetic way, and saying, this is Israel. Because Israel gets compared to fig trees all the time, and now the Son of God is looking at this fig tree and says, you look like you're supposed to look, but when I get close, no fruit. You should be able, if you've been a Christian for 15 minutes, make a connection to what 
Jesus is saying. You look good, there is no fruit. You look like the nation of promise. You look like my covenant people, but there is nothing on the tree. And as a result, the only thing good for you is to cut you down and throw you into the fire. John chapter 15. And that is exactly what's going to happen to Israel. Here is what is really interesting. Jesus is there partially in judgment over Israel and over their refusal to acknowledge Him as the Messiah. He is rejected by His own. John chapter 1. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. He was rejected by men. He was despised. And so, because the nation of Israel, who had received all the blessings of the covenant and all the promises, have stonewalled Him. Now, there were some, obviously, that accepted Him, but the vast majority have a stiff arm up. They are saying no to Jesus. Jesus is coming to them like this fig tree and saying, you've got the look, but you do not have the fruit. Similar to what he said to the Pharisees, you are like a whitewashed sepulcher. Beautiful on the outside. Inside full of dead men's bones. What we're talking about is good old-fashioned hypocrisy. What we're talking about are people that look the way they're supposed to look as followers of Yahweh, as followers of Jesus Christ. But when you get close and look behind the leaves, there's nothing there. So this is, this is descriptive by telling us what's happening in Israel in the first century, but it's also prescriptive for us that we should take the warning seriously that we do not want to be Christians that dress the right way, talk the right way, do the right things, show up at the right events or whatever, but inside there's nothing, there's no connection in our life to God. So that's the fig tree. The other view on the fig tree is, is that Jesus totally knows that this is a fig tree that is not in season, and He's bringing this judgment uh, motive anyway. He's going to do it as a prophetic illustration, and He's just doing it to show them that Israel, you have not been obedient, you have not received your Messiah, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, I am... I am demonstrating through the tree being cursed what's, what is about to happen to you. Either way, it arrives at the same place. I tend to think the first one is true, that it was, that it was the type of fig tree that should have had something on it, even though it was out of season, because it was the type that had fruit in the spring. But either way, the answer is Jesus is showing the judgment that is to come. Now, here's something for you to know out of history. This is probably A.D. 33. Fast forward 37 years to A.D. 70. Everybody's heard me talk about this before. And Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. 
totally and utterly destroyed. In Matthew 24, Jesus says about this temple that they're walking into, Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left, and this generation's going to see it. AD 70, Rome destroys Israel. The judgment of God really does show up on the nation of Israel that's rejected. But coming out of that is the church filled with Jew and Gentile, united by the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel. So that is, that is where Israel is headed. But here, Jesus curses the fig tree. By the way, this is the only miracle that Jesus does that is destructive. This is the only one that He does. Now, I'll just tell you, when I was growing up, I was taught that we should curse strip clubs and liquor stores. No. But that's what we did. We used to drive by them and curse them in the name of Jesus. We used to do that all the time. That is probably, that is not what this verse is for. This verse is about something way bigger than strip clubs and liquor stores and tobacco places. Though, if I could curse anything and wield such power, I would probably do that. All these little tobacco vape places everywhere. It's like, why are these things on every... Anyway. So, Jesus is... what? And Daryl, do we have that... Did that image... Can we put that up on the screen? I don't know what it's going to look like. I hope it works. It kind of works. So, just so you have an idea, because we've been talking about Bethany... And Bethpage, where Jesus is coming from, that's the Mount of Olives. And this is, this is actually a, um, one of the maps, like a Google map image of the actual area. And then they superimposed on top of it um, ancient, this ancient Israel the, at the time of Jesus. So this, this area here where it says temple, you can't see. But where Jesus is at when he's seeing the fig tree is between uh, Bethpage and the temple. He's going down off the Mount of Olives, and then this big, let me just get over here, this big area here is called the Kidron Valley, and you go down, and then you go back up to the Temple Mount into, into uh, Jerusalem. He's coming from the east, so he's going into the east gate, and right here at the bottom, under the word temple, is where Jesus is going in the next section of the verses, and it's called the Court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was something that was put there uh, as a way for the people who were trying to, they were called proselyte Jews. There were Gentiles who wanted to become worshipers of Yahweh. But they weren't Jewish. So they weren't allowed into the Holy of Holies. They weren't allowed into the inner sanctuaries. They weren't allowed into the other areas of the temple. Which, by the way, this temple is big enough that it will hold 75,000 people. That square will hold 75,000 people. It's a big area. The, te- the court of the Gentiles is where Jesus is going in verse 15. And what he finds in that temple or in that section of the courtyard, which is supposed to be the court for the Gentiles that can't get in there, but they still want to come and worship God, what he finds are money changers and cattle and pigeon sellers. Now, why would, why would that be what is going on? Well, there's this little thing called money. You may have heard of it. 
There's lots and lots of stuff that we discuss about money, and money is a big issue. And there's money to be made when pilgrims are coming from all over the Roman Empire who are Jewish who want to come during the week of Passover. So since all these people are coming in, and just to give you an example of how lucrative this would have been, Josephus records in AD 66, Josephus is a Jewish historian, but he was not a Christian. He just chronicled things. In AD 66, he says over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered during the week of Passover. That's a lot. And all of them had a price tag and were sold. There was a lot of money to be made if you had uh, a bunch of pilgrims coming in, a bunch of Jewish people coming in for the Passover, and not only did you get to sell them the, the animals for sacrifice, but you weren't allowed to use your crummy, filthy money from whatever grubby, barbaric place you came from. Especially since most of the money had the image of Caesar on it. They would not accept that in the temple. So they had... Has anybody ever went overseas and had to get euros or had to get some other currency? And you have to go somewhere to exchange your dollars for euros? How many of you know what I'm talking about? And there's an exchange rate that takes place. Uh, you can do this at a bank. And when you make that exchange, you're actually paying the bank a little bit of a fee for them to provide that service for you. And you don't really care because you can see the beach or the cruise or wherever it is you're headed. So you, you make this exchange. That is exactly what it means in this text when it says there were money changers. This business is ingenious. Bunch of pilgrims coming in. We got what you need. We got lambs. We got pigeons. We got all the sacrificial stuff you need. And you're not allowed to present your money to the temple uh, in the image of Caesar. So we will also provide little miniature banks inside of the temple courtyard to exchange, and for a nominal fee, we'll make that exchange for you. And by nominal, I mean you're out of luck, you have nowhere else to go, you're going to pay me whatever fee I want. That is what made Jesus so angry. So knowing that background and knowing what's going on and knowing what he just did outside the city, Jesus knew what he was walking into. So he walks in, let's look, verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturns the tables. Have you ever seen this dramatized anywhere? I don't know if you've ever done it. I've done this before. I don't know if you've ever just take a simple table and just put a bunch of money and pigeons on it. I've never done it with pigeons, but I have done it with other stuff. And you just flip it up in the air. It's dramatic. If, if you did that, if you went up to a booth in the mall, one of those booths where they bother you in the middle of the mall and they won't let you walk by without trying whatever their nonsense is, if, if you went in and, and tried this and just went over their little bodega stand and overturned it, uh, you would attract some attention, probably some applause, but you would attract attention. This is what Jesus does. The other Gospels tell us, and it's one of, honestly, it's, it's very 
sobering what Jesus does. It says he goes out and makes whips. He takes the time to braid some rope into some whips, comes back in, overturns the tables. Keep in mind he's a carpenter. He is not a little tiny itty bitty guy. He is probably very strong. He comes back with whips and righteous indignation and drives them out. And he does it in a way, and it's not mentioned in Mark, but you hear what he says. He says, verse 17, he was teaching them. See, I always thought, I always thought that this was just an emotional type of outburst. He flips the table, he's whipping, he's yelling. It's like dad came home and everybody was in trouble. Which is true, but it, look at what it says in verse 17. He was teaching them. So there's a lesson. That, there's more than just the outburst. He's teaching them and saying, here's the most salient point of his message. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has overturned, whipped, driven them out, and taught, impassioned. This is my Father's house. It is a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 56, 7. The other Gospels say that they remembered Psalm 68 zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus is not operating out of what we would be operating out of, which is rage or operating out of our sinful anger. Jesus is operating out of zeal for the house of the Lord. Jesus is operating out of perfect, righteous anger when He does what He does here in the temple. Look at verse 16. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I was reading William Lane's commentary, and he says in there, ironically, Jesus is holding them to the standard of the temple, which is you're not allowed to carry instruments. You're not allowed to use the court of the Gentiles as a thoroughfare to conduct business. This is a part of the temple area that is meant for worship. It's not meant for anything else. It's meant for the Gentiles who are wanting to become Jewish. They want to, they're, they're, they want to be a part. They're, they're in that process of their proselyte Jews. They want to worship the King of Kings. You're not supposed to turn this into a thoroughfare where people just walk through. That's why it says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's actually holding them to the standard they should have been living by. The reason that's ironic is a lot of the times Jesus is criticizing them for putting those kind of standards above everything else. Here he's recognizing you've abandoned why that standard is there. So it's, it's somewhat ironic that Jesus is saying, what do you guys think you're doing? You're abandoning the rules. So this is Jesus coming from a different angle. 
But the reason, and I don't know if you've heard this in what we've been reading, Jesus says this is a house of prayer for all nations. This is the Gentile court. The promise is to Abraham and to his descendants. And do you remember what God told Abraham? I will make you a father of many nations. Isaiah chapter 56 that Jesus is quoting, he says, These things I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. The Gentile court is a place that's supposed to be a prayer for all nations. And it has been turned into, because after all it is just the filthy, dirty, yucky Gentiles. It's been turned into money changing. It's been turned into a place of commercial profit, which God is not against commercial profit, but this kind of commercial profit that extorts and disregards the poor, He does not like. In His house, that is meant to be the house of prayer, absolutely not. Let me read you Zechariah 14.21. You, you don't have to turn there. It says, Every vessel in Jerusalem and Judea shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house, a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It's a reference to the day that's coming. It's a reference to the great day of the Lord that's coming. And it's a reference to the fact, fact that God's temple and God's house is supposed to be sacred. That's actually a reference to the verse 16, not allowing anybody to go through. Let me read you what William Lane says. He says, By purging the temple forecourt, Jesus bore witness to the conditions of that day when God would gather the righteous Gentiles to His temple to worship Him. There's something else going on with the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles, which we know from the rest of Scripture was very, very poor. Their attitude towards Gentiles was, ooh, gross, get away. They were looking for the Messiah to return and bring judgment. They were looking for the Messiah to return and cleanse the temple of all these filthy Romans and probably, yes, these Gentiles too. Get them out. And what Jesus was actually doing was cleansing the temple for the Gentiles. Because why is Jesus in Jerusalem? What are the last five chapters of Mark going to be about? He is marching towards the cross. And the cross represents that promise to Abraham fulfilled that you will be a father of many nations and that Jew and Gentile, every tribe, tongue, every race, every creed all over the world are going to be coming in 
to relationship to Christ, it is not just for the Jewish nation. It is spreading all over the world. Jesus has come and brought judgment on Israel who has rejected their Savior. And simultaneously, He is cleansing the temple. He is cleansing the Gentile court. And it's like He's pointing a finger saying, this is where we are headed. I am dying for the sins of the world, not just the Jewish people. Now, obviously, as a result, you can read verse 18 and 19. They, the chief priests, the scribes, they heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When Jesus spoke this way, when he spoke in this powerful way, and they just watched him drive out all these people with the, with the animals and with the money, they recognized that he was speaking with authority. Meaning, not just that he was loud and bombastic, but that Jesus was saying things that got to the heart of the issue of their lives. That this is God's house. So they were afraid of what the crowd would do because he's obviously popular. But they begin plotting. How are we going to get rid of him? Verse 19, evening came. He goes back out of the city. And the next day, which we'll talk about this next week, they see, the disciples see the fig tree withered. So the story goes fig tree, temple, fig tree. And it's a picture of the coming judgment on Israel. But the other thing that's coming is redemption. The other thing that's coming is in this judgment that God is bringing on Israel's failure to acknowledge their Messiah, there is also redemption coming. That is the beautiful thing about Scripture and about the way that God in His mercy gives us Sunday mornings like this as, as little moments of warning to say, I am the judge of all the earth. I do not like hypocrisy. I do not like leaves on trees with no fruit. I do not like people who claim to be Christians and do not live for the King and for Christ. So be right with me. Repent and be right with me and bear fruit worthy of repentance is what John the Baptist said. But also, it's an encouragement to Christians who are faithfully serving. And listen, part of this is, nobody. there isn't some kind of standard of perfection when we talk about fruit on these fig trees. We're talking about the difference between the stiff-arming rejection of Christ, but still wanting to look like a Christian. Still wanting to portray attitude. You want society to accept you or you want people around you and your family or your friends to accept you as a Christian, but you want to live secret lives in the dark and hope nobody ever sees it. And I am here to tell you that God sees everything and knows everything and not just what you've done, but the intention of your heart. 
And what these kind of passages hopefully do, and I pray that they do, is serve as a knock on the door and say, wake up to the redemption of Christ so that you are not in line for the judgment that will ultimately come. If you are here and you are alive and you are breathing, you can avoid the judgment by coming to the mercy of God through Christ. You can be free. You do not have to pretend to be a Christian. There is nobody in this room, including me behind the pulpit, that can claim any kind of perfect life. I am totally dependent on the grace and the forgiveness of God. I'm not preaching some sort of Christian perfectionism. What I'm, what I'm telling you, though, is, is that God wants genuine trees with genuine fruit, which means you are abiding in the vine. You are connected to Christ, not putting up a front. And we still, to this day, have so many people that don't want to, do, don't want to have anything to do with living for Christ truly, but they want other people to think that they are. And I'm just trying to, I don't want to say scare you, but I'm trying to have you see God will not tolerate that. He wants your heart and your life. He doesn't want leaves that look good. He wants fruit on that tree. And here's the great thing. You can't produce the fruit without being connected to Him. You can't do anything apart from Christ. The answer is not for you to say, I will buckle down and be a better Christian. I will buckle down and read my Bible more. I'll, I'll quit doing that. I'll quit going to those websites. I'll quit flirting with that girl at work. I'll quit whatever it is you're doing. And I'll be a better person. You're going to fail. You, you can't do it without Him. You've got to have Him. If you're not connected to Him, there is no fruit. Jesus said that I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like cutting off, a, I've got an apple tree. If I cut the branch off and just stick it on my porch, no apples are growing on that branch. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of Christians like that. They're cut off from Christ. So they're not Christians. They just want, they want to live in a fantasy world that they are, and I believe in Jesus. But it doesn't, for whatever reason, there's no connection in your life. So I am pleading with you, if you're that way, or if you're watching online, or listening on a podcast, repent and say, I need to know the Christ that brings the fruit. Because I look at my life and I don't have any fruit. I need some help. And calling on the name of the Lord is what you have to do. And the glory of God is this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you are a Christian, here is something you've got to know. There is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. I have to go to Jesus. I have to rely on Him or I go nowhere. You're not going to produce fruit just because you decided that you're going to be better. You have to decide to fall on your face before Jesus and say, help. And the, the good news is, 
The moment you do that, he is there. He is there. Don't try to be a Christian on your own. That is why you fail. You have to go to Jesus and trust in him. One final thing I wanted to say, I started to say it. If we say that we have no sin, this is 1 John chapter 1, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to, anybody know what the rest is? Forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Every day that you're alive is a mercy from God where He is extending His mercy out to us. And I'm just telling you, reach up and grab it. Call on the name of the Lord. Don't try to pretend or hide. Call on Him. Let's stand up. There's some really good news coming in these chapters. It's Jesus dying on the cross, taking all of your sin. Punished under the wrath of God for all the wrong that you do. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word, for your truth. God, we thank you for difficult passages. Help us see that you are a righteous judge, but you're also merciful, loving, gracious to us in Christ. Lord, help every one of us to see it's not by works, lest any of us should boast. It's not by our striving and our effort. It is our surrender to You, our faith in You, nothing else, nothing else will do. God, deliver anybody in this room who is living a life that's double. The one they want people to see and then the real them behind closed doors. God, deliver us from that type of life. Draw us into the light of your glorious grace that we would serve you with a clear conscience and a full heart, not because we're perfect, but because we know we are rescued by Jesus and cleansed by your blood. Lord, I pray you would help wherever we're at in our walk with you this morning, God, that you would help us apply this to our life and live for you with all of our heart. Lord, we thank you for it this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.